we have to be able to fly the Soyuz, you know, which we do in Russia, and that's a real specialized skill, operate the big robot arms, do spacewalks, fly the spaceship, run the 200 experiments on board, but everything else, too, fix the toilet and, and reprogram the attitude control system or uh, do basic dentistry or basic surgery <laughs> on each other. That is the voice of our very special guest this week. I couldn't be more excited about this episode, so let's get to it. Probably science. Welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. I'm joined by Andy Wood. Yes. And Jesse Case. Hey, guys. And at some point, hopefully an astronaut. Yes. We're very excited about this. I think we'll... Well, I, I think it's definite. We'll yep. be joined by an astronaut. This is the night before. This is... You guys won't know this because you're going to listen to this in one go, hopefully. But we're doing a pre-record. This is the preamble we're doing the night before. We're going to Skype the astronaut. This is Please Astronaut the, Eve. As, as, if you, as if the listener can't see the name of the astronaut in yeah. the title of the we episode. We have a secret astronaut <laughs> that you can Wait. only tell the name of if are you were to read... Are we going to say the name in the title of the episode or just an astronaut? <laughs> I think it's better to just go. I think we should just probably say, science with an astronaut, with a spaceman, yeah, <laughs> with a with a with a cosmo man, mystery cosmonaut. <laughs> yeah. the, this is astronaut Eve. Mm-hmm. We've we, we put out our astronaut it's not, socks. It's not astronaut Steve. <laughs> you put out your your dehydrated ice cream by the, by the fireplace, <laughs> right? Right. And we've all been good. We've been very well behaved all year. Did you yeah. guys ever eat? I, I don't know if the astronaut food craze made it across the pond no i was in when i was growing up we didn't have astronauts we do now now there's been a couple of brits up in space but But there's no actual british space program they've allowed brits to take part in other programs yeah well the international space station program that is genuinely international which is i'm sure we'll talk about a little bit with with our our astronauts who is an international astronaut yeah he is neither american nor russian which is traditional space people yeah. countries too international if you ask me they found uh, they found a few members of isis up there um, in the iss yeah that's where they got their name yeah we're very excited about this before we get fully into space stuff a huge thank you to everyone who came out over the Podfest weekend we had we couldn't have been happy with how the show went we had some it was it was at capacity people were standing out in the hall capacity and i think it was entirely due to us and the history of our show and tim and <laughs> but yeah. mostly us okay. so yeah massive thanks to Tim was great, and Dr. Amy Parrish was amazing. If you haven't listened to the episode, give it a listen. If you want to see the episode, there's still time to go to lapodfest.com slash live and use the offer code SCIENCE for... That gives you $5 off. So just for 20 bucks, you can watch every single video from every single show at the festival. And all the workshops and things. And all the workshops and all the talks, which... So for those of you who are actually podcasters or thinking about becoming podcasters, those talks are really interesting as well. Anyway, have a look, have a listen... Uh, obviously, we put out the audio, but if you want to see what we look like doing the podcast, I realize I set my microphone a bit too high, so I'm peering over the top of it <laughs> like one of those can... graffiti. What was the little character? Was it Chad? Um, 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 Kilroy. Oh yeah, I was think it was Kilroy was, different... was yeah. a World War Two era uh, graffito. Anyway, that's me. Yeah, that's can, me through. It the can pod. really wig people out though, seeing people you only know their voice and then seeing what they look like. Didn't you have that last pod? Fo- First, didn't someone come up to? Oh no, it was you. I'm not. Sure. I think people always assume that I'm. Uh, I have this. I have this awful voice. And your people, voice isn't awful. <laughs> it's weird. You have a lovely voice. It's a girly voice. I don't know. It's. it's Did you a, say girly? It's. It's like a it's high a, pitched. It's not high pitched. It's smoky. Smoky. Uh, I don't know. You know what I mean? You sound like a. Uh, if it was girly, 
It would be like 1950s New Orleans blues cabaret singer woman. Why don't you come up and see me sometime? Yeah, yeah, yeah. who's like 80. Like, okay. <laughs> Why don't you guys, if any of you haven't, any of you listeners haven't seen a picture of us or videos of us and have previously formed ideas of how we look based on our voice and our conversation. Please draw those. Send those yeah. in. Send mm-hmm. them in. And remember to mark your envelopes. Voice. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, we, we really, really uh, appreciate you guys coming out. Uh, met I met uh, a father and son who who trekked it out from Salt Lake City uh, to see us. They, it was incredible. they tried to take me up on the offer of the beer that I made on the podcast, and every time I ran into them, we were at a catered event where the beer was free, and I I, I feel bad. I still owe them a beer because I can't give them. You know, well, we already gave them multiple free beers know, through the I, festival. But I but I talked to them. It. I'm gonna be uh, I'm gonna be at Wise Guys shortly after the New Year. I'm gonna oh, buy nice. them. A, I'm gonna buy them your beer there. Okay, thank you. Okay, I'm a man um, of my word. We met people, uh, we met uh, Australians came out. It was just crazy. It was great. Oh, by the way, the, the trailer for Earbuds, the podcast documentary that Graham Elwood and Chris Mancini are directing, they showed that, and I didn't realize Russell Porter, who met up with me in uh, at, at Burning Man, our listener from, friend from Australia, he's featured prominently in that movie. They went on site to where he works in Australia. He works at some on some mine, and they showed him with like a hard hat and schematics in front of him uh, listening to comedy film nerds out in the outback wow. while he's doing this and they, i didn't even put it together that that graham also knew russell yeah small world and that actually is going to be um i think available on youtube soon the earbuds trailer that's going to be a great movie i was really impressed with what they have so far for that yeah um so you know, guys make sure to check that out and check out the live feed and we really uh so awesome meeting you guys mm-hmm. and uh we're forever impressed at the uh creativity and fervor that the uh, fan base brings. Yeah, with all the theme songs you guys have sent in. And, yeah, uh, you guys we... see the Febreze thing that Sally sent? Oh, that was ridiculous. <laughs> yes. That was so good. Sally Sally Grossart, who did our We Paper People yep. thing. Um, yeah, if you haven't seen those as well, she's done them for... I don't know how she does anything because she seems to listen to every podcast and watch every TV show. Right, yeah. But um, she makes these 3D paper people that you can... That she just gives you the net so you could print it out and, and the folding instructions and make your own mini us's and mini loads of other people yeah why don't we just yeah we, we've linked to that before but just in case you want to do that now we'll put a link over yeah i think she also does com. commission design so if you want a cool you know christmas present or whatever oh she can. designed our current logo also yeah yeah, yeah. Did you already say that I'm but she did a special jesse case febreze uh perfume ad it was like a uh febreze por hum you know like a, it was a it was a perfume ad and i'm in a very nice tuxedo um <laughs> With a pipe, you know, and, uh, and it, aren't you like buttoning your cufflinks? I'm buttoning, I'm buttoning yeah. my cufflinks. It looks very good. Um, it was very flattering, uh, and uh, yeah, and I, I put that. Uh, that's on the Twitter somewhere on our Twitter things. I don't know. I think we I think we took care of that. Mm-hmm. But um, no, absolutely incredible. And that's of course referencing the uh, Tara Flynn episode we did, which you should go back and listen to because it's quite a story. It's that's- about the hardest I've ever laughed at. It's definitely the hardest I've ever laughed at one of Jesse's ludicrous exploits. Wow. It's, it's the thanks, best encapsulation I think. Of, I think, of the thanks. essence of Jesse in the story, I think. It's, it was very, very funny. Oh, well, thanks, guys, I think. Again, my, <laughs> am I being insulted? I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, so, guys, it's Astronaut Eve. It is Astronaut, it is Astronaut Eve. Eve. We, we should talk about, I think all of us, all three of us were Children space of, enthusiasts. Yes. Of course. Growing up. We all hit that generation where it was space and dinosaurs. We were all encouraged to be really into that. I was always far more on the space side of things. Oh, me too. Yeah, I don't know if I ever cared that much about the dinosaurs, but yeah, yeah I was... I felt like I was supposed to. They were like a cool band that I was supposed Duh. to be into. Because like the dinosaur kids at school, 
and I'm talking early, early school. I'm talking yeah. being seven or eight. The dinosaur kids, the kids that walked around like T-Rexes and stuff and always talked about dinosaurs all day, yeah. were way, way cooler than the space kids. We were, we were over, you know. Who walked around like shuttles. Yeah. We, we were ridiculous, just uh, pretending we're rockets and stuff. Uh-huh. There was always a kid with his arms out like an airplane just running in circles on the <laughs> playground. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just alone. Um, so that was me. That was young, <laughs> young, young Jesse. Um, somehow pretending he was a plane. I guess I pretended smaller people were in me. I don't know. Makes sense. But reading reading the book by our guest, we our mystery astronaut guest. We should Yeah, Chris Hadfield. We, we got Chris Hadfield Chris, coming up. We got Chris Hadfield. Colonel yeah. Chris Hadfield. He's one of the most seasoned and accomplished astronauts in the world. He was a top graduate of the US Air Force Test Pilot School in eighty eight and the US Navy Test Pilot of the Year in ninety one. He was uh, selected by the Canadian Space Agency to be an astronaut in ninety two. He was Capcom for twenty five shuttle launches and served as director of NASA operations in Star City, Russia from 2001 to 2003. And he was the first Canadian to do a spacewalk, I believe, correct? I think that's right. Yeah. And he most recently served as commander on the ISS during this mission we're talking about. Yeah, he was definitely the first Canadian to command the ISS as well. Mm -hmm. He's best known to the general public as that guy who did the Bowie song in space. He did the cover of Space Oddity from the International Space Station. He recorded the vocals and I believe guitar... Yeah, which mm-hmm. everyone saw. Like, everyone saw that. It's 20 it's, million views to 40 million? I don't know. Lots yeah. of millions. So that was him. That was Chris Hadfield. Uh, but it's also worth pointing out, if that's the only video of his you saw, go online and look at... He made hundreds of videos from the space station. Yeah. yeah he, he took really, a really good quality camera up there. He talks about it in his book, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. The fact that he um, wasn't much of a photographer before going on that trip, but his son kind of pushed him to do more social media while he was up in the space yeah, station. Yeah, one of his and kids was his social media hookup who was talking him through, here's what you need to do. He was the one who put up the Space Oddity video and threaded it on a couple of message boards. That's a big but- thing with, with astronauts, the, the getting super into photography. Like the, uh, the Apollo astronauts, I know everyone got a Hasselblad camera, which was a really nice camera, mm-hmm. right? You know? And they really learned how to do it. They got su- and I think they all carried on, um, at least the three Apollo 11 astronauts, uh, like carried on that hobby the rest of their lives. Oh, okay. I mean, uh, well, well, two of their lives still continuing, of course, but mm-hmm. but uh, car- you know, carried on the hobby. That By the way, I- makes sense. I mean, if you've you've if you've seen th- things, seen Earth, and seen anything from a perspective that only a handful of other people have ever seen it in. Yeah, human existence. Not even a bird's eye view. A, a no life form. A space view. bird. A space. Yeah. Some kind of space yeah. bird. It's what it is. He does talk in his book about the experience of the first time he did a spacewalk, where he was like, even he'd been in space before, mm-hmm. but it still was nothing compared to being outside of the craft and no restrictions to his view, and just looking at the vast expanse of the universe, and then looking down on Earth as he just floated freely. It's got to be I, insane. I know. I try to imagine. I try to imagine the complete. Mindfuckery of that. The I mean, I know you're so prepared. I mean, so much of his books yeah. about preparation and don't flip out, don't flip out, don't flip out. He might well be. He might be the world's most pragmatic man. Right. Like I was. He's look- an amazing preparer. Yeah. He's yeah. The ultimate Boy Scout. And he. Yeah. And he talked. Like part of the reason why he's so, I think, good as an astronaut and so together is he manages to turn that into a sheer joy. Like he talks about that all the way through the book and one. The book, by the way, it's well worth a read. It's a very quick read and very enjoyable read. We all plow through the book. But it's it's very much, it talks about experience of space and everything, but it's very much, here are the lessons I learned becoming an astronaut and here's what you could apply to 
right. everyday life. And some of it, some of it, I think I, I call bullshit. Some of it I call like, yeah, you could, if you're made of the same stuff Chris Hadfield is, like if right. you're that, if you have that sort of, head, the kind of headspace to go for it single-mindedly. Give us an example. Give us well, an example I, here, man. I think when he's, when he's talking about the, the sheer rigor and the sheer determination and drive and and the way he approaches tasks and the preparedness well as an example he was growing up in canada he watched the apollo 11 mission happen when he was nine years old and decided he was going to be an astronaut at the time there was no space program in canada by the way i'm going to qualify my i call bullshit on this in a minute yeah yeah I, i think i was nine when i saw debbie does dallas i remember thinking that you know i'm gonna yeah but you've still to this day never done dallas and that just shows you yeah well, we didn't even have a Dallas in Tennessee. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that was the problem. Yeah. But, um, but so, so some of that is like, yeah, but if you're made, I think if you're made of the same mental stuff that he is in the same way, if, I will never run as fast as Usain Bolt, no matter how far, if I, no you have to train for I months, tra- I think. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Yeah. Years even. And, and, and I, I don't think you, I, don't I mean, you just don't have the time, career, but I think, I think, you know, at least five or six months for you to get to, to that speed. Usain Bolt speed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But then also, I don't think I have the, he- I don't think I have the mental Makeup in the same way my legs aren't made to run as fast as you're saying, but I don't think that my Again, brain is made. You'd have to give it a couple months. Yeah. yeah. However, well, like man. with that being said, I'm now going to qualify that statement. So I think to an extent you're like, yeah, I'll never be that person. But a lot of the lessons he talks about through the book and a lot of the ways he approaches life and approaches new challenges are really interesting and really valuable. And I, I'm right. hopefully we're going to get a chance to talk to him about that a bit when we actually interview him. There, there are things that he talks about that you'd, you'd think are sort of pessimistic, but they're more pragmatic. And I, I can wrap my head around them. Like, but I mean, they do, they do a simulation of the scenario, what would happen if you die in space? And they have all, the, all hands on deck doing the, going through the process they would go through. And yeah. who, you're the person that contacts the media. Okay, who calls his wife? Who yeah, does... that was nuts. Because they're, they're not even talking about the negative consequences from a technical point of view. It's well, they aren't. What do we do with the body? Yeah. Which of the astronauts are going to dispose of it? But then also from a psychological point of view, they they do death drills. Yeah, where someone practices telling the family and like how do how do we get the information out in the most in the least stressful and then they and throw in way. And then they throw in a twist in the story in the simulation where like okay suddenly the media found out early what do we do now like they'll do these things when they do simulations where they have like every possible weird thing that could come up it's similar you know the way I was saying most astronauts get into uh, photography mm-hmm. you know same thing most astronauts uh, do a big goth phase afterwards well, yeah. when they come back <laughs> huge goth phase because of all this training I would have an existential crisis immediately in space um, yeah I don't think any of us are made of what you need to be. Yeah, I can't. I can't do it. I, and and um, I, you know, I Wait, existential crisis or or claustrophobia or a combination of the two, or just because you'd see too much, it would give you too much perspective. Or what's the existential crisis about? Well, I I just mean you know earlier when we were talking about the spacewalk and just the sheer expanse of it, yeah, and seeing it, the moment when it actually hits you, what's happening, and not some weird filmic beautiful thing. Oh, look at that. Yeah, but the moment that the human brain is perhaps not evolved to even see that. Like, that's... Well, that, was a, that was the thing they talked about in Packing for Mars, that psychologists were worried there was going to be instant space insanity in the early days of the space program. As soon as people looked back on Earth and realized that... No, but I'm saying I would get that. You would get that. I'd be the guy that goes space crazy. And again, because... I would, have, I would just immediately choke out my crew members. Like, I, you know, it would it'd be nuts up there. <laughs> but the, again, like using the arm, using like yeah. a robotic arm. To try. <laughs> right. But again, I would do it professionally. Again, looking through, for me, is just how 
little time there is, even across a mu- several months long mission, how little time there is to take stock and not just be doing tasks because almost every minute of every day on the space station is regimented right there's a little bit of downtime at the end of the day and there are little moments here and there that you can grab but for the most part so on the spacewalk you're out there for what six seven hours maybe but with a very with a specific task or several specific tasks to accomplish and you've rehearsed them and you've gone through them in the simulator they even have a simulator on the space station so they can refresh the simulation and so every every second of it, he had that moment of going, holy cow, this is amazing. And then it's like, right, down to task. Task one, task two. I get and it. And then he went blind. <laughs> no, goes, I get it. But I also know that he, you know, is writing a book and stuff. And is it's from his own point of view. There's no biographer with you. I can assure you that every astronaut has fucked off. Every astronaut. What do you mean? Just fucked off, like just just fucked around for a minute. Oh, well, they talk about no. The, they do they talk- have they have a fair amount of downtime. I mean, he was saying uh, they have their races. They have the um a, a, the packing- after dinner most nights. It's pretty much whatever you want to do until until you go to sleep. That's yeah. when he started to do all these videos. I'm and talking about things. fucking off at work. I'm not talking about within the regimented time. They would just you would say. I mean, that was that was the off. the infamous thing about Apollo 10 is is they couldn't even you know. And I want to talk a little about the history of the the different missions and why we did them. Yeah, I suppose. I hope, we don't have much time. We've been told 20 minutes. We get 20 minutes of talking to him. With Colonel Hadfield. Yeah. That's why we're still Andy's, rambling. Yeah, Andy's seat. So we're trying to recap as much of the book and talk about as much ourselves Absolutely. before we get the time with him. Andy's secret hope is that... Oh, secret hope. Well, Andy's hope is that he'll have so much fun talking to us that he'll be like, <laughs> ah, we'll talk for longer. My secret hope now is watch that he'll have... Five minutes, he <laughs> yeah. hangs up on us. <laughs> My secret hope is that he'll have so much fun talking to us. They'll be like, I'm going to put your name forward to NASA. Um, <laughs> right. Because I well, think you guys should be the first podcast in space. Well, we did We did drop the ball in a big way. In the early days of the podcast, there was an open call to people within a certain demographic. Like NASA was trying to recruit astronauts about two years ago. And Brooks and I were within the... I was barely within the age range. And I think... Yeah, I correct- wasn't around for this. this. I remember the first I knew about it, I think... I listened to one of the episodes where you're talking about it, and then one of our early listeners emailed yeah. in to go, um, so how about those things you promised to do that you never follow up yeah. on, like become astronauts? <laughs> but Andy, this, that, that's your second failure to become an astronaut, Well, yeah, I did, I did just return home from a trip to Michigan, and while I was there, my mom happened to go through some old pictures and said, asked if I wanted to take some of these back with me. And interestingly enough... A lot of these were pictures of me at uh, at space camp in Huntsville, Alabama, if you guys want to see. <laughs> Andy, is, you uh, went to space camp. Did you win a Nickelodeon show? I didn't. That was the prize on Double There, wasn't it? Um, it was the prize on every Nickelodeon yeah. show. It was, was it really? It, it was. There was a yeah. time when space camp was the be-all and end-all of uh, childhood in America. Ah, that wasn't a thing that exists. I, w- I would have gone to that in a heartbeat if I was a kid I will in say it gave me a, a, probably a very accurate view of what space travel would be, and it turned me off of it completely. <laughs> really? <laughs> because it was, it was just so much bureaucracy. It was, it was, they were training you to do the kind of things that Colonel Hadfield talks about in this book. Well, that he, he here's takes, your class photo here. Right, that's, that's our class. So, and everyone else in this picture is now an astronaut. They all became astronauts, astronauts yeah. Wow. And he's I, I a comedian and podcaster. One of those girls was my whatever you can call a girlfriend when you're 11 years old, but I had... Fuck buddy? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, what I'm yeah, looking yeah. for. That's the term. Um, no, but like, I for one thing, all I really wanted out of space camp was to be in that spinny chair you'd see at the end of Double Dare when they would show the oh, things yeah. that happen. And then it turns out that's, that's called Space Academy, 
and that's only if you're 13 <laughs> years old or older. Oh no! You go in the spinny chair, so I couldn't even do the spinny chair. Uh, Jimmy, oh, hang on, is that is that the chair that rotates in the three planes? The, the, so, gyro, right. the, the gyrosphere gy- thing, yeah. yeah. Okay. Instead, we did things. I have been on one of those just at the Trocadero in central London. Well, I mean, yeah. Now I've been to um, Magic Mountain, and that's probably even more fun. But um, they did things like we we you know set off. Um, model rockets, which is really nothing to do with right. space. You could just do that at home. Um, they but you just strap the smallest of your classmates to the top of that. <laughs> yes. It was a very well, powerful model rocket. It has everything to do with space. It's how it all started. Right, but I'm saying it's not something that's unique to Hunts- Huntsville. And I, could, I already was an enthusiast of model rockets at the time and would do those myself. Do you know how myself. many extra surplus fireworks are in Alabama at any given time? <laughs> they have to get rid of those fireworks. That's, that's what they're doing. Uh, one of the things we had to do was get inside of a raft and paddle across a pool and back a couple times because when you splash down, if you're an Apollo astronaut, you're going to have, you yeah. might be in a floaty. So Which, by the way, no longer the case. Things. No longer well, the case, well, not with be, the Soyuz, but. Yeah, it would be if it went off course. I'm sure they do prepare for a water landing. Right, but I mean, but really. The, the American shuttle would land on a runway and the Soyuz would land on land. Yeah, but this was just an excuse to be like, okay, we got a pool here. Or still does land on We'll call this part of the training. And then the most ludicrous thing of all was... Rice Krispie treats? Rice Krispie cookies? The space shuttle simulation we went through, which was a simulation... uh, It's it's probably very similar to what Colonel Anthony describes in that you have to follow precisely a... uh, There's a binder full of explicit instructions. Right. You tell someone else to do something. They do that thing. They report back that they've done it. Once you hear that, you say, okay, check. They've done that. I do this. And you're sitting in a mock-up of the um, of the space shuttle lander or whatever the main thing that once the boosters or whatever you're sitting inside. I think that the, is the shuttle. Sure, the, the shuttle, cockpit. The cockpit. Sure. Um, but again, this is like 1988. There's no cool. It's not like you're seeing a video screen. It's a simulation of what you would see. It's just buttons. It's just instruments. Lights are everywhere. coming on and off, and then maybe a recorded voice saying. Not even a recorded voice. Yeah, so it's just like you press that button and you look in the binder. It says, okay, it says to press that. I press that button and I say now that I have pressed that button and someone else acknowledges that I said that I'd press that button. Sure. And that really is what being an astronaut is from what this book describes. But I mean, there would be the sense of like, you know, this is for a purpose when you're doing it as an adult astronaut. Yes, and also if you've spent as much time in NASA and that kind of thing as all of those people have, or yeah. the, like a- any of the men and women who've ended up as astronauts have spent a huge amount of time training, but also involved in developing the training. So right. they've also, not only if they are they following the procedures, but they also probably had a hand in creating those procedures and working out what could go wrong and creating some of the contingency plans yeah. and all that kind of thing. The Kobayashi Maru, if you will. Wait, why, why do I know what that is? Is that Star Trek? Is yeah, that? it's the unbeatable test that Kirk beat. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, no, but, I mean, I, I really did get new respect for for what what joy you can take out of um, out of process and because I, I mean I guess I had it in my head that being an astronaut was so unglamorous because the downtime seemed like nothing but bureaucracy but then in this book I'm realizing like well no when you when you realize that all these things have a purpose you can take joy in in the process of 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 studying things of learning things even if you don't end up going to space again like yeah and still... that, also, that becomes really interesting when he talks about returning from his final mission yeah because it, the, his he went up to he went up in space three times um two shorter times one once to the mirror on the on the shuttle Mm -hmm. then once to the early early not fully built yet iss i think that was also a shuttle and then a soyuz russian soyuz mission to the iss which is the final one where he was the commander of the yeah of the space station and that's where he did all the videos uh by the way I, i briefly said at the beginning 
there's loads of those videos online watch them they're amazing yeah we'll try to link to a couple of the most notable so interesting and fun but um he talks about when he returns from his final mission and he knows he's no longer going to be an astronaut they put you back in the middle of the pack yeah yeah i i guess i guess the early days when when they cut you know when um the apollo 11 people came back they get the ticker tape parade and they're forever those famous guys but he talks about actually he takes pleasure in sort of going back to, okay, what's the next task? Now we go... Yeah, there's a humility in, in the whole thing that is built into the system. But then also they get put back into the mix. They get put, put back into just, all right, back to the procedures. And It's sort of like, it's like a Cincinnatus of yore. Yeah, uh, it's but Roman times, right? Where you'd be brought up, you're a farmer, now you're dictator but they would all go back to being a farmer. But I would argue that they always did that in NASA, especially the the ticker tape parades and stuff was because these were at the time an incredibly huge deal the first person to walk on mars will definitely get a parade right and like, that parade will have to be on mars because that's a one-way trip yeah. <laughs> every mission the point of every mission is still to reach a w- within a series of missions for instance the apollo missions or gemini or mercury there's an ultimate goal of that series of missions so Sputnik launches in, in 57. Three years later, Yuri, uh, Yuri Gagarin? Gagarin? Gagarin, yeah. Gagarin, the first guy in space. Um, and then we sent Alan Shepard. Mm-hmm. Um, John Glenn, first guy to make orbit, you know. And then uh, Kennedy comes out and he's and says, like, Let's, by the end of this decade, by the end of this decade, um, we'll put a man on the moon. And by the end of the 1970s, we will put a Negro on Mars. And they've always cut that. They've always cut that. They have always cut that part from the speech. But it is very, very popular part of the speech. By the end of the 1970s, we will put a colored man on Mars. You can you can clearly it's on you. It's all over YouTube. OK, so really? so I'm not sure that's the case. I'm telling you guys, he said it. But they just couldn't you figure. Get a different YouTube in Tennessee. <laughs> yeah, it has the Tennessee filter. Um, so that was the goal the whole time. Let's get to the let's get to the fucking moon. And the point of Mercury. Mercury were all solo missions, mm-hmm. sending up one astronaut, and it was like, can we breathe up there? Can we do this stuff? How do we go space crazy? Do we go space yeah. crazy? Um, you know what happens? Uh, then Gemini was working with other people. Uh, those were the first. Uh, those oh, were is all- that why it was called Gemini, like twins? Yep. It was, oh, all two man, it was all two-man missions, oh, okay. and that was uh, um, things like docking, undocking, um, also extended periods of time. And then Apollo, all the Apollo missions had to do with getting to the moon, so they would go orbit around the Earth and practice docking and undocking with a lunar module, and then they would do it closer to the moon. And then by Apollo 10, I mean, you know, we've talked about this before, Apollo 10, they literally didn't give the lunar module enough gas because they thought those astronauts might just land it anyway. Oh yeah. yeah. The point of the point of Apollo ten was the lunar module. Because I think it was Apollo nine had done a full orbit. A- of the Apollo moon. nine was the first orbit. So of Apollo the moon. nine had got to the moon, orbited it, and then returned to Earth. Apollo then, eight was the first docking and undocking of the module. Apollo uh, nine was an orbit. So then Apollo ten combined goes them. to the moon. The lunar module undocks. It flies to, I think it was within about two or three kilometers of the lunar surface. So It, it was closer it, than that. It, it was flies, really fucking close. It flies down towards the moon and then flies back up again and redocks. Um, and yeah, they, you're right. They didn't... They, they, they intentionally left they intentionally gas out. They didn't give them enough fuel to go all the distance because they knew that if they gave them enough fuel, there's a good chance knowing the kind of people that were on those 
missions. Also, <laughs> all these guys um, who have the... And I, this is something I hope we get a chance to talk to Chris Hadfield about a mm. bit. All these guys who have this reputation, like these, they're all cowboys and they're all lunatics or whatever. They also all have engineering degrees. Oh, yeah, And they're yeah. all... Like, when this is going on, they're, they're not only, like, crazy test pilots, but they're also doing advanced geometry and algebra out there and like and calc like they're calculating curves and gravity and yeah working out how their orbit is going to intersect with it's and yeah with with the smaller crew sizes everyone has to be there's no specialists everyone has to be has to know a little about everything i mean i will say though that as much as by the time apollo came around a lot of these guys had doctorates and had their shit together um the the they really were just recruiting crazy test pilots early on. Like the Mercury missions, you're the first guy after the chimp. It's like, yeah, they talk. There's a pretty high. They're like, look, you'll, they talk about you there might. The, there was the Mercury Seven that was the very first American astronauts, and then I think they talk about the next intake. I can't remember how many that was, but the next intake, which included Neil Armstrong and I think Jim Lovell and a few of those guys, mm-hmm. they talk about that as being the most capable. Yeah. That's that's like the creme de la creme of the astronaut intake. Like the uh, They're all like, these are the guys. Of course. And then there was the third group that had some of the later Apollo people, Buzz Aldrin was in that group. Yeah. And again, obviously very talented people, but they talk about like the second group, they were the ones who were, uh, well, when the- they realized they needed these super brains who also had the skills yeah well the first the first man mission to space the first american man mission to space there wasn't even any piloting i mean that that wasn't even a thing that w- we hadn't even gotten there yet in the missions mm-hmm. so it was just you go up you hopefully don't die you come down and that you know that's the deal so these really were like crazy ass stretch armstrong crash test dummy guys you know early on um i i think we're we're probably gonna be joined pretty soon by yeah Mr. Hatfield, yeah. right? Although we made it quite clear at the beginning of this podcast that with a, with a nap in between. That's true. We're going to bed and then we're waking up and Skyping Chris Hatfield, hopefully. Before we do... Our we- voices are all going to be one octave lower. It's just going to cut to the, our, our early morning voices. <laughs> uh, we're joined by... Uh, we got an astronaut here. Should, should we quickly... We've got a few people to thank. Should we do that? Yes, we do. Um, people to. have sent us donations via probablyscience.com, which we greatly appreciate. So nice of you. And yeah, particularly in the light of the live episode, I think a lot of people really like that and we sent, got some really nice donations in. So who do we have to thank, Andy? Uh, Rebecca Thornhill thank said you, Rebecca. that she listens Rebecca to us. Thornhill. We, we keep her company in the lab. Thank you, Rebecca, for sending. Well, I love it when real scientists listen to our show. Not, no, no, no. not that I don't also love our, our non-scientists. She's actually not. I I go to her lab a lot and just hang with her. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know Rebecca quite well. That was, that's uh, she was being literal there. Excellent. Um, she's from and her lab is just Ottawa? a Labrador that like it's large enough to fit you and her inside. Yeah, we both hang out in there. Okay. Yeah, it's like so a it's like a lab. A yeah. frequent writer, inner and listener, Morgan Perrine started a monthly donation. Which Morgan, you can do thank you, Morgan. Also, thank you, PayPal. Uh, Murphy Shane. Uh, gave us a donation. We got a donation from Murphy. Donation from Murphy okay, Shane. No, Murphy Shane Matthew, gave us a donation. Matthew no, Arnold no, no. has a monthly donation set up as well. Thank you, Matthew. Um, Olivia Campbell from New South Wales uh, sent in a nice. Olivia donation. Campbell from the, is, it was New that? South Wales in Australia. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't even do know what gol- country I was doing. That was Gollum. I don't even I know what I was doing. Pretty sure that was some Lord of the Rings. Yes, it's in Australia. It's, uh, Olivia Campbell. Precious. It's West. It's West Sydney is. Olivia Campbell. Um, nope. Olivia. Nope. Still Madison up. Martinez. Madison Martinez from Lafayette, Colorado, Olivia. sent in a very specific amount. 
And he said he knows it's strange, but it's the atomic mass of his favorite element, niobium, which I haven't heard of. Is that a made-up well, element? Now, now, for the first time, we've given away a donation amount. Well, you'll have to do some research to see you how, have how much to. that you, was. You look hey, at it. I didn't tell you where the decimal was. So, um, interactive. He said... Uh, well, thank you so much. That was a very generous donation. We appreciate that it. That is a very lot. generous donation. Niobium? Yeah. Mm. Ni- if any of you have heavy elements that you're a particular fans of... Yeah, it, well, let's get you know symbolic into the, donations. Set them up. Um, if your if your favorite elements helium, fuck you. We don't want you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We want we want but, metals. We want alkaline metals. Paulo, Paulo, Navarro. We want it when it gets to the radioactive levels. Yes. We want unstable elements. Paulo, thank you, Paulo, Saiz Navarro. For oh, thank thanks, Paulo. Thanks, Paulo. Monthly donation and thanks for the kind words about the live show, Paulo. Yes, yes. Uh, Nathaniel Wilson from the Kinky Fingers sent us a very generous donation. And uh, he said if we're ever in Denver, he wants to set up a comedy and music show, which I think I'm all for if we can make that happen. Let's Let's play some Kinky Fingers shows. And Olivia Campbell, who sent the donation earlier, uh, she had a specific piece of feedback about the Tim Minchin show. She's recently read a a few articles on neurosexism and the perpetuation of sex differences within scientific studies. And it was great to hear someone within the field comment on it. And she said it never occurred to her that, that even science is bound by socially constructed biases. And so on reading about patriarchy and science... One of her immediate thoughts was, what would Matt Jesse Nady think? So she was glad that we answered her, her hypothetical musing. It's good to know that when she's reading about patriarchy and science, I her know. first thought is, what three would these dudes. three white men? <laughs> these three. Sorry, we're part of the problem. But also, if people are, are looking for ways to help out the podcast besides donating, you can also click on our Amazon link and then shop as you normally would, and then we get some money and kick back from Amazon. And we're going to link to the uh, book by Colonel Hadfield. So if you go to probabilitycents.com, we'll have a link directly to buy uh, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. And if you do buy it through that link on Amazon, it kicks us back a little bit too. So Yeah, so thanks for that. Win-win. Thank you so much to everyone who donates. That really helps us. And if you're not able to donate and you're not buying anything through Amazon, the other way you can really, really help us out is if you're a fan of the show, please spread the word. Tell your friends. Uh, tweet about it. Facebook about it. Ello about it. Are you on Ello yet? I've just done that. <laughs> no. I've done nothing on it. Oh so I'm, not, I'm not doing it. Fuck that. I've added ways. I say I've, goodbye. I've saved my name that. just in case. But anyway, if whatever social know, media is your social media of choice, or tell people in person, if you find out your friend's a podcast listener or wants to get into podcast listening and you enjoy our show, tell them. It really helps us, helps get the word out. So thank you very much to all of the donors and thank you to everyone who helps spread the words and helps write things, nice things about us on yeah. iTunes. Subscribe if you're not already a subscriber. Find us on Stitcher and iTunes <laughs> and all those things. And we will be back in a second with a real astronaut. With- Hello? Hi, this is Chris Hadfield here. Hi, Colonel Hadfield. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm Matt. Uh, This is Andy and Jesse. Hello. Matt, Andy, and Jesse. Good morning to you. Are you guys over on the the left coast? We are indeed, yes. So it's uh, it's, it's first thing in the morning for you. Good morning. Very much for three comedians. It is about as first thing in the morning as it gets. Yeah. Well, you you should just still be up from last night. Well, that was the original plan. And then we thought, no, we'll make a special effort. It's not often you get an astronaut, so we'll... Actually, that was something... I didn't didn't even realize until reading your book that you guys all keep normal hours on the space station. I I kind of thought because you get sunrise and sunset every... How how often is it you get uh you get a full you, you get one, one every forty five minutes. So you could in theory pick any time zone you chose and make that your time zone, but uh, everyone sticks to the same time zone to work together. Well, have you noticed? Have you noticed on Star Trek whenever they meet anybody from any other galaxy, everybody's on the same time zone? It always seems kind of odd to me. You know, the captain's always awake when they meet somebody. That is a good um, point. On the space station, 
<laughs> it always seemed a little bit contrived. Yeah. On the space station, we have, you're right, we have a complete freedom of choice. Uh, in the old days, uh, the Soviets would work on Moscow time, the Americans would work on Houston time, but since it's an international space station uh, with people all around the world, we had to choose some time, and we chose Greenwich, actually, so we're on... Um, we uh as a brit i appreciate the same that time the, same time same time the queen does i guess that's all we'll be and that and that's intentional right in case you need to ask her advice for anything yeah it's <laughs> we have a red red phone on board regularly. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it's uh, we just compromise i think actually it split the pain between uh, moscow and houston sort of e- in equally inconvenient for both Perfect. Yeah, I'm surprised it isn't Moscow now, since the only way to get up there these days is is to use the Soyuz via via Russia. And well, that that's how we've always. I mean, uh, Expedition One back in in the year 2000, we flew the Soyuz up and back. The space shuttle was was a big delivery vehicle for bringing parts and components up. The Soyuz is what we've always used for taking people up and back. That that didn't okay. change. Here's a question, because you're one of the few people who've traveled on both the shuttle and the Soyuz, and it seems like the shuttle is a much worse takeoff, but a nicer landing, and the Soyuz... Sorry, the shuttle is nicer takeoff... Um, sorry, nicer landing, worse takeoff. The Soyuz is a much nicer takeoff, but uh, almost a ballistic landing. Maybe you should, you should, ask, you should ask me about that, maybe. That, that's what I was... Uh, <laughs> but, but here's my, here's my uh, question. If you were going to design a brand new craft, what would you, how would you make it, or what would you prefer? Uh, well, f- form follows function. We, we design spaceships to do a specific job, and, and then everything else is a compromise after that. And, and you're right. The space shuttle was a much rougher ride to space than the Soyuz, but the Soyuz is a much rougher ride home and a much harder landing. Uh, so, but but the, the purpose of the two vehicles is very different. The space shuttle was an enormous construction machine. It, it could, it, it was like a, a big um, uh, transport truck that also carried seven crew. So, so it, like arriving somewhere to go build something. Whereas the Soyuz is much more like a taxi. It just carries three people. So, so they have very different purposes oh. and, and therefore you can make trade-offs. The shuttle needed huge wings because it had to be able to carry big cargo back from space, you know, big telescopes and things. So it had to come back and land gracefully, whereas the Soyuz just needs to be survivable. And, and right. so, uh, if you're designing a new vehicle from scratch, then you just decide what what's the purpose, and then you strip away every single thing that you don't need, make it as light as possible, and uh, and and then see what you come up with. And the two new vehicles that uh, NASA's just approved, one built by Boeing and one built by SpaceX, they look a lot more like a Soyuz because their job is to take more people, but still just people, up to the space station and back. So they are they are sort of bullet shaped capsules that will launch on the tip of a rocket and then return like a meteorite and land under a parachute. Okay. And when you're coming back, even from Soyuz, you still do bring back things like uh, experiments you've been running at the ISS the whole time. So everything has to be pretty crammed in that small area, correct? Yeah, we only bring back very few things. The Soyuz is is pretty tiny. Um, SpaceX has built an unmanned ship they call Dragon that lands in the ocean uh, under a parachute. And that's where the majority of our stuff comes back. Uh, the Soyuz underneath our seats, it's, it's as if you had three people in a smart car that are going to go over Niagara Falls. <laughs> that's sort of what it's like. 
that's what it's like coming home. And and so how much science do you really want to bring back with you? We have a couple little cold packs, you know, some things that have been in the in the minus 80 degree freezer so that we could they can survive the trip home. And as soon as we've um, rolled to a stop on the fields of Kazakhstan, on the steps of Kazakhstan, uh, and we've they've pulled us out. Been then there. they uh, <laughs> get the seats out, crawl in, and <laughs> get the seats out, crawl in, and then grab out the, uh, the bits of stuff that we brought with us as well. But it's uh, uh, stowage space is at a real premium in the Soyuz. And, and because there are so few people, uh, there can't be as many, from what you said, as many general or as many specialists as there can on the shuttle and so everyone going has to know a wide range of things including you mentioned in the book you all have to be able to perform basic surgery well you never know what's going to happen and yeah normally we have six people on the station but uh we we come and go in in ships that only have three seats so you'll have six people on the station for a while and then three people will go home and now you're down to three people for the entire space station and you're waiting for the next crew to come up but obviously if they have a rocket problem or some sort of delay you could have three people on the space station for, for for months, for maybe a year. So every single skill you might need has to somehow be within those three people. So we, we have to be able to fly the Soyuz, you know, which we do in Russian. That's a real specialized skill. Operate the big robot arms, do spacewalks, fly the spaceship, run the 200 experiments on board. But everything else, too, fix the toilet and, and reprogram the attitude control system or – uh, do basic dentistry or basic surgery <laughs> on each other. You know, it's, we have to be able to do it all. And so, I mean, I trained in a hospital uh, where I, I worked in all the different wards and on simulators and then worked in emergency and, and, and sewing up and stitching up and stapling up and catheterizing whatever real people coming in just just in case. See, on the space station that that came up as something we might need to do. See, that was something that really interested me in the book, the, the sheer rigor of your training and the, and the ratio of training to actually being in space, which is immense, like nearly all of the vast majority of being an astronaut is learning skills and designing new skills and that kind of thing by the sound of it. Um, but It is. Yeah, I, I trained for 20 and a half years to be in space for six months. So, yeah, it's, it's a vast amount. And the pictures that I took in the new book, you know, they're, they're, I trained uh, for with photographers for years. I trained as an IMAX cameraman, Aeroflex, uh, Linhoff, uh, Hasselblad, and, and all the different lenses and everything to be a, a, at least a competent enough photographer Cause that to again, be able to try and photograph it. That again amazes me because in the book you talk about the fact that you are in no way a natural photographer. You, talk, you, you sort of say that you're, you're just not good at it, and yet the pictures you ended up taking and the videos you end up taking look amazing well yeah you know if you give enough monkeys enough typewriters <laughs> you know uh, and i took forty-five thousand pictures but then again um for every picture that national geographic puts in their magazine uh, you know there are thousands that they reject because you want the one that tells the story the best but the real fun part for the for the latest book that uh, that's just coming out was uh was so much fun going through the thousands of pictures and trying to pick you know, 100 or 150 that really told the story as if, as if the four of us were, were all looking out the window at the same time and pointing out to each other what's interesting about the world and what you can see. That's That was a fun process. And, and if you take enough pictures, you get some that, that really show show the world at her best. Just You're not talking about an astronaut's guide to life on Earth, are you? Is there a newer book coming out that's mostly photography? I didn't know about that. Oh, oh, oh I'm sorry. Maybe you didn't know. Yeah, it's called oh. You Are Here. Oh, and, excellent. And yeah. It comes out in Canada, the U.S., and the U.K. Um, right, right around now. And, oh, fantastic! Uh, so just in yeah, time for it, Christmas it, presents. 
<laughs> right. Yes. It's, it's, just a reg- <laughs> it's just a reg. It's just a regular book. It, it, uh, it's not like a big coffee table book or something. But it has about I don't know about 150 pictures that you've never seen. But oh, my idea was let's go around the world once together and let me show you what what's there. Just you know look at it with me and and um, and it uh, the proceeds go to the Michael J. Fox Foundation. You know so so it, but I, I really wanted people to see what it's like to. Uh, to go around the world once and, and get a get a picture of it. But you're right, it comes from a whole host of, of training skills, more stuff than you'd ever believe, just to try and get ready to make sure that no matter what happens, the three of us can handle it. So, so we, we were wondering about, about uh, this, because the, the, the first astronauts, the, um, the Mercury and Gemini and Apollo people, um, there's that sort of image in the public eye of them being cowboys and, you know, just uh, brazen lunatics going up into space <laughs> but clearly clearly they clearly they also had a, a vast amount of training but do you think there is a big culture shift between that era and the modern era of astronauts or is the public's perception just off on what those guys were really like oh it's a combination of both the public perception is based largely on movies which of course are all, all um exaggerated but um or, or glorified or made into hollywood but the first guys, I mean, they were doing something brand new, extremely complicated. They were involved with designing the vehicles and, and taking great risk. And so we wanted really experienced test pilots, guys who had proven their capability um, to take a misbehaving vehicle up and go do something with it and safely return. And, and it didn't really matter what your personality was like because you were alone in the spaceship. You you needed you needed to be able to do that job properly. Uh, with the shuttle, it evolved because suddenly we had seven people on board and not everybody needed to be a test pilot. You, you could have a whole mix of skills. And in fact, you wanted it. You wanted people that were just like the Mercury guys because flying the shuttle is very demanding and difficult. But then you need scientists on board. We had veterinarians and, and particle physicists and astronomers and you know a whole variety of skills. Um, but and you, not everybody needed all the skills because there were seven folks to distribute it. Now on the space station, where you have three people for six months, uh, suddenly we need a different set. You not only have to be able to, to learn how to fly a Soyuz, uh, you know, uh, one, a little spaceship, fly it by yourself, but also you have to be able to run the 200 experiments on board and, and fix anything that breaks. So the training is long and, and really varied and all around the world. I mean, you have to fly the Soyuz in Russian. So, you know, right. first learn Russian. <laughs> then learn orbital mechanics and control theory, then start training on the Soyuz. And that's just to get you there and back, you know, so it's a it's a much longer training flow and a little more broad. And also you want personalities that that uh, get along people that, um, you know, that have a good bedside manner. They're going to be not not, you know, not needing to be entertained by each other all the time. So it's it's, uh, it's evolved over time. But there's still I mean, I'm, I'm a fighter pilot, test pilot, engineer, right. just just like the first guys. Uh, but they're just looking for uh, other stuff that you can do as well. Yeah, because you you t- oh, sorry, go for it, Jesse. Now, now, when the Russian astronauts, when the cosmonauts, uh, when the cosmonauts themselves go up to space, um, do they do it sort of inside each other like the dolls, and then and then <laughs> disassemble on the station, or is that on yeah. the uh, or does the does the American Canadian in your case astronaut uh, assemble them himself once they reach the station? <laughs> 
<laughs> Some assembly required, like a Matryoshka doll. Yeah, that that would be a great space saver. Although it would make like the next episode of uh, Aliens. I think. <laughs> oh, something would go wrong immediately. Yeah. Uh, well, something that something that I really wanted to ask is uh, on almost every account from any astronaut that I've ever read or studied, and and you and yourself uh, in the book mentioning that sometimes people get annoyed at the amount of litter you pick up uh since since coming back from space um it seems to really just the experience of it seems to really affect uh humanism in people um and i and i was wondering i i don't want to sound too out there with it i I was just wondering what that experience is like so so after asking if cosmonauts were stacked like Russian dancing <laughs> you don't want you don't want to be out there. Um, yeah, well, no, no. no I mean, you know, I'd like <laughs> to meet Jesse. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to yeah, keep I, it in the. I, I understand. Uh, no, the. Um, I, I think... Touche, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the experience uh, puts it all into perspective for you. I've been I've been around the world. Uh, 2,593 times and, and you get you get a different view of the world it stops being the little place that you live which you're you're concerned about and then everywhere else which is just sort of imaginary for you or or, or you know those people and their problems right. you start you can't help but become just part of the whole thing when you see it so many times over and over and over again and you see the standard repeated uh, patterns of how we live everywhere. It's, it's, we're just the same. Yeah. You know, our politics, our history is a little different, uh, with different religions around the world, but people are just people and you really get a sense of that. And, and so you start to feel that same feeling of, of, of responsibility for, for your own normal little circle. You just start to feel that way about the whole planet. You get a real sense that we're in this together. And that's, you know, that's, Part of the reason I did the second book, just to show people, we're all in this together. Have a look at where we live. That's why the book's called You Are Here. That's that's just, um, it's how it is. And trying to let people see that perspective, I think, is, uh, is a healthy one. Yeah. You, you did a lot of outreach on the space station in your time there. And uh, I, was, I was wondering, has that changed official policy for, for NASA and CSA now that the videos and pictures you've taken have, have gone viral? Is that going to be a bigger part of future missions? To do well, it's more technology enabling, you know, it, it's it's uh, um, the, the Internet that didn't really exist for my first flight and, and uh, social media, which did not exist for my second flight. Both of them uh, were really uh, available by the time I flew in space on the on the long duration flight last year. And NASA built really good capability. They put interconnectivity. The station basically can log on. It's really complicated, but but I can get logged on to the Internet from the space station. And so it, it suddenly allows us on board to not have to just sort of record it and wait six months to tell people about it, right. but to real time show people what's happening and then the canadian space agency the csa was great in, in i would make a bunch of little video clips send them down and they had a video editor who turned it into a two-minute youtube clip and those those youtube things have been seen millions and millions of times and then i recorded a bunch of music up there um a whole suite that i'm performing with symphonies now and stuff but i did that cover of the of the david bowie thing of course yeah and that was a project that was a project with my son but that's been seen including rebroadcast hundreds of millions of times so part of it 
part of it is, is personal initiative, but the big part of it is just improved technical capability. And the reaction has been the interesting part. Million, hundreds of millions of people um, see it as a result of the technology. And so NASA, uh, of course, is very much interested in, in having people see what we're doing. And, and so they're taking advantage. They put the capability there. But if the guys that are outside on a spacewalk or living on the station now, they, uh, they're, they're really uh, trying to do the same thing to, uh, to honestly show what we're, what we're doing and what it means as a person, what it's like. You know? And that, you know, imagine if when Darwin had been sailing on the Beagle, if he, instead of waiting months and years, if there had been a way to share some of the experiences real time with the researchers all around the world and they could all talk to each other, it would have sped up the process of comprehension so much. And that's sort of the stage of exploration we're at in space right now. So, yeah, it did change policy, but I, I was just sort of in, in the middle of it. And, and I'm really pleased to see the reaction that's come in. Yeah, the videos are great, I, especially the Space Oddity one. I'm a big fan. And also, I'm an owner of a Larave guitar, so I like that you had one of those up there with oh. me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know who put those guitars up there? It was our psychiatrists. They put that guitar up on the space station. Interesting. Not, people think I, I brought it up on a Soyuz or something. Not at all. It's the uh, our psychiatrists recognize that music is ancient and fundamental, and, and we need it on Earth. It's everywhere on Earth. And so they put a guitar on the space station, so that and it gets played pretty much every day. So there's lots of musicians who are astronauts and or astronauts who are musicians. And so so uh, it gets played pretty much every day up there. It's, and it's a lovely little Larry Ray Parlor guitar. Nice to play. That's great. You mentioned there's a didgeridoo up there also. Does that get much usage? <laughs> very, <laughs> no, very little. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was that was Don, Don Pettit um, assembled one out of old uh, ventilation piping. Oh, okay. uh, found a, <laughs> the wow, traditional method. That long droning place. <laughs> yeah. But hardly anybody ever says, hey, hey, could you please play the didgeridoo? <laughs> yeah. On Earth or in space. That's yeah. never been said. No. Didgeridoo don't. <laughs> yeah. um, we, we've got a couple of um, a couple of our listeners. We put, put it out when we knew we were going to have you on the show. Um emailed in with a couple of questions. Andy, have you got... Yes, one of the listeners was wondering, um, let me bring up the exact question. When you see videos of, of astronauts on the space station, it looks as though, let me find the exact wording, um, looks as though you have a lot of veins popping out in your head when people are in space, and they figured it was because of the microgravity, but they're wondering if that's true and if it's uncomfortable and if there's any issue with high blood well, pressure in space. Actually, it's just, it's, it's like you're perpetually standing on your head. Uh -huh. um, you, there's Gravity doesn't pull the blood down to your feet anymore, but your body um, does what it's been doing for whatever, 40 years and squeezes it back up to your head. So you get extra fluid in your head. And so it makes the veins in your neck and your forehead and whatever, uh, you know, terminator a little bit. You get this bulging sort of Hulk head all the time. <laughs> and, and, and it's just the way it is. Uh, but but your blood pressure is actually really low because because your heart has almost no work to do. It, there's, it's not lifting your blood against gravity at all. And, and you can be really lazy. You don't have to hold your head up. You know, you don't have to lift a finger up there. You can be completely idle in weightlessness. But, yeah, you end up with extra fluid in your head. So it, it's, it, it feels as if you're standing on your head for six months. Yeah, that's that's crazy. And then, of course, you pay the price for that later when you come back to Earth because you suddenly don't have enough blood yeah. flow to your brain, correct? Wow. Yeah, it all suddenly drains to your feet. And you don't even have enough blood in your body so that, in fact, uh, 
you you would you faint as soon as you get back if you stand up. You have to wear a G suit that squeezes your calves and squeezes your thighs and squeezes your lower abdomen, just like you're holding the bottom of the balloon with two hands, just to squeeze the blood up to your head. I've Otherwise, only ever just... worn the string, never the whole suit. <laughs> uh, like spanks for weeks. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, Absolutely. We had another listener. We did have one more listener question. Well, this is also something I was wondering. Of course. Because, uh, in Mary Roach's book, Packing for Mars, she talks about some things that people do on the space station that maybe are against protocol, but still happen, according to her research, including um, sometimes people smuggle alcohol up there. Is that something that you have? Uh, has, that, has that happened? Are you not allowed to talk about that? Or Well, well Mary's not actually, she's never been on a space I know, station. I know, I know. Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, it would be a really bad idea, uh, you know, because sure, you want to relax and, and celebrate and have a good time. But but at any instant, the three of you have to jump in your spaceship and fly at home. If you get hit by a meteorite that punctures it or if you have a fire or decontamination, there's there's nobody else to count on, you know, and and you don't want to. Uh, I don't even know what the right acronym would DWI spaceship driving while intoxicated <laughs> yeah, would be a sure. bad idea. So so no, that that's. um to your knowledge, it would be nice, and someday we'll get there for sure when there's enough crew on board that you can take care of each other. But for now, you know, we're not there for our own fun, and then we we take advantage of being there, but uh, but yeah. Yeah, it's against the rules. Speaking of that, uh, there was in the news recently talk about um, a, a means of getting to Mars via putting putting um, crew in stasis and sort of hypersleep. What's your uh, what's your take on the viability of something like that in the near future? Uh, yeah, I, it's really easy to put someone into hypersleep, but it's really hard to get them out. <laughs> and so, so I, I, I don't think that's the right solution for, for going to any place, you know, otherwise we'd use it to go to Australia. I think it's just not, not the way to travel. It's, uh, we need to figure out engines so that we can get there quicker. Uh, mm -hmm. we don't, I mean, we don't do that on earth and, and, and it's just not, uh, I, I don't think that's a practical solution. It's a nice science fiction solution, but unless unless the world is threatened, you know, so that so that we know for sure things are about to end or a lot of people are going to die here and then we have to go somewhere else. I just don't think we're going to go to those extreme measures. We're just we're just going to continue to incrementally explore in the vertical, just like we've always done around the surface of the earth. There's no great urgency, and and so uh, yeah, that that'd be a pretty extreme measure. And uh, I, I, I just see it as being a good thing for science fiction movies and and, um, yep. and talk, but you know, I don't think it's practical. Yeah. Do, do you feel like Mars is the next big challenge in space? Like, I know Buzz Aldrin is very much campaigning that Mars should be humans' next target, but do you, do you feel personally that's what we should be going for, or are there plenty well, more things to be done in Earth's orbit? Uh, uh, well, no, I think the moon is the obvious next destination. We have so many things we have to invent before we can safely go to Mars. Uh, and, and there's no urgency. There, there's no the, – when Buzz flew, of course, it was the space race. And that was right. a proxy Cold War, and it was, it was a gauntlet cast down by a popular president. And then that president was shot, and it sort of gave a, a, almost a religious fervor to the necessity to land on the moon by the end of the 60s. And that, that impetus of that, the, the feeling of, of a hurry and of a race was, was contagious and kind of set everybody's feeling for how we explore. But, but as soon as Buzz and Neil put their boots onto the surface of the moon, the race was over, and, and space exploration kind of stopped 
because uh, because by nature it was that we decided it was a race and the last two uh, nixon canceled the last two apollo landings even though the rockets were already built you know it it's not the way to explore the universe we're not in a big hurry and, and trying to go to mars early would suffer exactly the same consequence you know it's so far and and so risky and, and why would we do that right now with the technology that we have there's no hurry we're going to live on the space station for another 10 or 15 years and then everything we learn there will help us set up an outpost on the moon over the next who knows 50 years just it you know as we just like we've done in antarctica over the last 100 years and then from there all the stuff we invent and learn about the earth and learn about the moon and learn about technology that will then enable us to go further so eventually of course we'll go to mars it's like saying in in 1490 do you think we'll ever sail across the atlantic i don't think so um you know it's just you know we're just in the early early stages and and uh, there's there's no big hurry so bus is buzz is far thinking but but at the practicality of it is what will really drive the schedule and for me we'll go from lily pad to lily pad we'll go from space station to the moon, maybe to asteroids, and eventually to Mars. But uh, but we got to invent a thousand things first, and and we're we're just that's what we're doing on the space station. We're just just starting the voyages. That sounds very much like the the, the Colonel Hadfield I read in the book. For a test pilot and an astronaut, you are very measured and risk averse, which was sort of surprising, but also I guess makes sense when you have so much at at stake. You have to be very uh, well. The- the, the thrill-seeking test pilots, um, <laughs> they they, uh, they don't last. <laughs> right, right. That, that's that's uh, you'll you'll die really early. Um, yeah, I've never met a test pilot who's a thrill seeker or an adrenaline junkie. Uh, you, you, that's crazy. You know, what you're trying to do is do something that is inherently really risky and really technical, and somehow make it survivable and safe. So, an astronaut flying a spaceship is is in, in way even harder than that. So, yeah, it's not. Uh, space cowboys at all it, it is it is uh, we you know what we do is difficult and dangerous but but at the same time it's um it's uh, very measured and, and complex and and we do we treat it really seriously just like uh, just like i do everything i guess uh, yeah and uh, well, that, i think that the two sort of life lessons that i think hit me the hardest from your book because your book is very much about how you apply how all of us can apply what you learned becoming an astronaut to life and to humanity in general. And and the, I think the two things that really hit me hardest were firstly, almost the negation of positive thinking. You're like, no, you you see the positivity and negative thinking and planning for the worst in every scenario, which I loved because I think people, there's a lot of nonsense out there right now about just see yourself, visualizing yourself succeeding and it'll happen. Whereas you're like, no, visualize yourself failing constantly and work out how to make that not be the case. Exactly. Visualize failure to me is a far more productive. Visualizing success, I mean, that's like 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 visualizing ice cream. I mean, that's, <laughs> you know, it's it's nice, but it, it doesn't get you ice cream. It doesn't create ice cream. You know, it, visualizing success uh, is is a nice panacea. But if you actually want to try and do something, then figure out where you want to go. But then visualize failure. And think, okay, so I want to do this thing, but what's the most likely thing to go wrong? And then what am I going to do about it? Or how do I keep it from happening? And then once you figured that out and practiced it and got it squared away, then go on to the next thing. Okay, what's the next most likely thing to go wrong? What's the next thing that's going to fail or kill me? And then let's figure that out and see and and figure out a way to not have it happen or or deal with it when it does happen. And then the next thing and then the next thing. Mm -hmm. So then when you start actually facing what happens in real life, 
then you're not just coming in with your fingers crossed with a nice rosy picture of, of the finish line, but instead you've got, um, you've actually got a, a way to deal with the realities of things that do always go wrong. And that's the only way we can fly spaceships. If we just visualize success, uh, we'd, we'd, we'd be dead at the start. <laughs> that's, wow. that's great. And the, and the other thing that hit home as a life lesson was, um, uh, try to be a zero, learn to be a zero, like go into yeah. a, every scenario as neutral and, not trying to show off as possible and treat it as a learning and experiencing opportunity. Yeah, I learned that a little later in life, but I, uh, it, it occurred to me, you know, so many people come come uh, roaring into a situation confident in not only their abilities, but also their ability to immediately recognize everything that's going on and force the correct action or start trying to influence what's going on. And if you're one of those people who's in that environment and in comes some person uh, you, they think they're this great big force for the positive. They think they're a big plus one coming in and almost invariable. Everybody else in that room goes, wow, what a minus one that person is. They don't, they don't understand any of the subtleties of what's happening. Whether, whether it's me coming back into my own household from a long business trip, you know, where I come in and immediately start laying down my version of the law and the whole family goes, well, hey, we did, you know, we were here before you got back and we had a way of making all this work and, and you're just messing it up. Or whether it's, you know, come blundering into a spaceship or coming into a, any sort of meeting, you know, it's so I tried many years ago to start, okay, let's, let's try and come into the room and aim just to be neutral, aim to be like not a minus one or a plus one, just aim to be a zero in this situation until I can at least figure out. So I'm not a negative, but I'm not blundering around stepping on stuff. Try and just uh, learn the subtleties of what's going on and then start with with uh, with insight, start trying to apply things to be a, work myself up to be a plus one. Uh, unless the building's on fire, you know, if the building's <laughs> yeah. on fire, be then get in there and start doing stuff. Yeah. But the building, you know, everyone always acts like the building's always on fire. The building is hardly ever on fire. And, and a little bit of um, of humility and perspective and time, I think, goes a long way. And and uh, and I sure learned that in multiple multiple times, both as a test pilot and as an astronaut. So something something that I wanted to ask, and of course we we're all have have read and are huge fans of your book, um, and we know we know we don't have have long with you here. Um, I don't mean that existentially. I, I just mean on the on the. <laughs> I appreciate on the, that. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I don't mean that. Um, uh, but um, we have, of course, some some uh, younger listeners to the show, and as someone that I'm I'm from Kingston, Ontario, uh, originally, oh, and yeah, and. Um, it sounds like when you first walked, uh, saw those those boots on the ground on the moon uh, as a as a young boy, that inspired you. You set the goal and you accomplished it, um, even though there was no Canadian space agency. Exactly, but you you <laughs> yeah. did it. You did it as a as a Canadian, which, as I know, is the farthest you can be from ISS. Um, so, <laughs> so um, you know that seems, not only is that of course very driven, but it sounds like you sort of had to figure this out on your own. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, there was no path. You know, what do you do when there's no path? You know, and and I thought, OK, well, I can try and make a path. But what am I? I'm a little kid in Canada with a bad haircut. How am I going to make a path? <laughs> what do I know? So I, I kind of just went, you know, my dad used to cut my hair when I was nine. So I uh, and you I had thought, the mustache well, at that age also. Correct. <laughs> I can't really change. Well, no, Canadian uh, boys are born with full mustaches. Okay, okay. I had yeah, one as yeah, well. It's, it's yeah. True. Sorry. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that's why we have safety razors. And and I um, I I thought, well, I, I'll be all I can really change is myself. You know, so what 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 should I try to start changing about myself that someday, if there is an opportunity, that then I might have fly in space. And so I thought, you know, astronauts fly in space. So. Okay, learn to fly. Astronauts train in spacesuits, and that's a lot like underwater. So, okay, let's learn to scuba dive. And uh, astronauts are from all around the world. Okay, so let's learn other languages. And um, astronauts have to learn really complicated things. All right, so I'm going to go to university. And and so I just that just it wasn't that I said uh, you know, if I'm not an astronaut I'm a loser. It, it was more if the opportunity ever arises, I'm going to be that guy who has tried to turn himself into the person with all of those skills um, that are not only kind of fun and interesting, because now I'm a multilingual scuba diving uh, <laughs> test pilot, but but also might someday, if Canada does decide to have astronauts, that, that will get me towards the front of the line. And amazingly enough, it worked out that way. But, but I think the key thing, especially for your younger listeners, is um, is not to let that end game be your measure of success. Don't ever say to yourself, I want to be that. And if I don't get to be that, then I'm a failure. Instead, I think it's way healthier to say, I really want to be that. So when, when I decide what I'm going to do this weekend, let's do stuff that sort of uh, helps me become better at the things that might someday let me be that. Because then you are inevitably dragging your life in the direction of something that suits you. And, you know, if you want to be a heart surgeon, okay, this weekend, learn everything there is to know about uh, about the ventricular valve or about uh, artificial hearts or about the nervous system or the, you know, the, how the, the difference between a vein and an artery, whatever, it doesn't matter. By Sunday night, you will have dragged yourself, you will have, you have modified yourself slightly to be slightly more like a heart surgeon. And you may never actually do heart surgery. You may end up in some peripheral part of that whole business, but it'll suit you. It's, it's, you know, you're dragging your life in a direction you want to go. And, and so for me, that's the real key. And I was just lucky enough. Well, actually, no, when I was nine, I said, I want to walk on the moon and I still haven't walked on the moon. So I'm a failure. Well, by definition, well, as I, I, I failed. <laughs> well, you failed, but enjoyed the process. Well, according that's to lots exactly, of exactly, that's exactly right. According failed, to lots enjoyed of the process. According to lots of YouTube comments, they filmed that about three minutes from where we live. So you're welcome to come out and walk on at any time if the, uh, <laughs> if the sound stage is still there. Um, according to, uh, <laughs> I, I wonder yeah. if in the 1400s as well or 50, there were still people. There were Columbus deniers. Columbus <laughs> there had to be Columbus deniers. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think he just sailed into the next bay and hid there for some months. <laughs> right, right. right. Some weird yeah. But then why would they still build the whole ship? I mean, so many people saw the wow. ship. <laughs> yeah, that's, we have still have to build this enormous, incredibly expensive, complex rocket. But, but yeah, it's just it's just so comical, especially now with you know telescopes, you can see the footprints on the moon. You know, <laughs> right, so right. just, but there are still people out there going, "Oh no, that's fake too." You know. So, yeah, they, wow. they he, he, they did put a robot that has makes footprints on the moon. Like they did that. <laughs> in, in hindsight, would have been cheaper to send people. Would have been cheaper <laughs> to make a robot that walks. Yeah. Well, it's it's been an honor. Your book is truly inspirational. An astronaut's guide to life on Earth and the I, upcoming uh, "You Are Here." The upcoming "You Are Here," which we're going to pick up immediately. Yes. Um, well, yeah, it's just just coming out now, and uh, I'm really I'm really pleased with it. it I would love the, imagine the four of us uh, doing the same thing, but where in the time that you and I have, have talked, we've crossed 
all the way from uh, from Ireland to Japan. That's about how long it takes. Wow. And, and we could have seen all of that pour underneath us. And that, that's what that book is just trying to do, show you show you what the world is really like. So it's, wow. it's been, uh, been fun chatting with the three of you. It's oh, been an honor and a pleasure. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, we really, well, really Jesse appreciate it. And Matt and Andy, thanks very much. Nice, nice to talk with you guys too. Thanks, you too. thanks for but, making the time. Go, go visit that soundstage. You should do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try. Listen, thank you, thank you yeah. so so much for joining us. Uh, have a great day, and we really yeah. appreciate it. Take care. All right. See you later, guys. Bye bye. Well, guys, that so uh, I feel like we should have a Dos Equis. That was literally the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> yeah, He's a Russian-speaking surgeon, deep-sea diver, astronaut guy. Test pilot. That's for sure literally, literally the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> the most interesting and humble guy we are ever going to meet. Well, yeah, that was great. That was great, guys. We just, we just hung up on Sky. We had a brief second, and then we're like, we should record a little coda to this. Yeah. And then having sat down to record it, all of us are suddenly like, that was good. Yeah, we just talked to an astronaut. That was good. I don't, I don't know. Just, there's so many things that I could have. Yeah, I mean, like, you could spend all day talking, just asking him to tell. You could go all Chris Farley show on him. Remember remember that time when you remember, remember what was it like? So, I guess, I guess, yeah, we just really want to thank you guys for listening. Obviously, we'll be back next week with a brand new Probably Science, where um, we're certainly going to be getting into more of the, uh, you know, the theme songs, and we'll have some normal stories and things like that. We've got a lot of backed up stories that we haven't had yeah. a chance to cover. And also, um, I, we only got to a couple of your questions. Thank you, everyone who did send in questions. Thank you, Zach Cody and Morgan Perrine. I believe we got to yours. I was paraphrasing your questions because I couldn't bring them up quickly enough. But uh, yeah, thank you to everyone who, who did send those in. Yeah, we really, really appreciate it. And um, obviously another big thanks to Colonel Chris Hatfield. And, and to Emily Burkett, who helped set that up. She was a guest on a, I believe it was a Christmas bonus episode that I recorded in Portland a year and a half ago. So, oh, oh that, cool. was, that was the episode where I talked to some of my scientist friends yeah. in London and you talked to some of your scientist she's, friends. In- she's a genetic counselor. I knew her from Portland, but just coincidentally, she grew up in Michigan and she used to vacation, I think, next door to the Hadfields on, wow. on Steig Island um, between... Michigan and Ontario on the St. Clair River there. So happy coincidence that worked out for us to That's great. Uh, talk to a real real Canadian badass. If um, any of you, any of our listeners, if you happen to have a summer home <laughs> yeah. near anyone amazing from the world of science. Yeah, let us know. You know, maybe you share like a, uh, like a ski lodge with uh, Roger Penrose or... Uh, most of our guests have been summer home next door related yeah yeah maybe you know. maybe sometimes you go surfing with neil degrasse tyson like whatever you sure, do whatever you're into yeah whatever you're into do you do, you do lawn darts with stephen hawking yeah. <laughs> then get in touch with us which is ironic but he's he's great at lawn darts he's a he's, a, he's very good maybe you regularly seance with the ghost of marie curie perhaps you and galileo play a little cornhole <laughs> It's so too early. It's too early. This is the earliest episode we've ever recorded. By the way, again, like how we arranged to talk to Colonel Haffield at eight o'clock. At eight zero 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 zero, he skyped. That's <laughs> like it oh, was nothing if not timely, precise. Oh, it was very precise. I yeah. mean, it was the, it was it was not even at the oh one second yet. Um, that's the sort of person we're dealing with here. And I'm going to send a letter to Dosekis. I seriously think <laughs> let's get a different guy be? in there. Yeah, who's this actor guy playing the most interesting man the in the world? I'm going to say though that, that is that, that, that actor, is three mentions now of a beer that hasn't been sent to us for free. That's true. We we should be drinking Lagunitas, but it's too early. We should wrap this up. Yes, okay. This is <laughs> going it's way far, off track. It's far too it's, early. It's We're too really going off the rails. Early. Too uh, much preamble. Too much postamble. 
Well, the, we the amble can, was good though. The amble was good, but we can do some editing. We got four minutes of stuff. Sure, yeah. Uh, forty minutes of stuff. Okay, so let's. Yeah, let's he was do very it. kind to go for a little, for a fair bit longer than we also arranged. So that was very, very nice of him. Um, All right, guys, we're wrapping her up. We, we, wrap we are going to wrap this up. Um, as always, we'll be back with a standard episode next week. As always, any questions, comments, clarifications, you can email us probablyscience at gmail.com. You can tweet us at probablyscience. You can donate at probablyscience.com. You can use the Amazon link there. Tell other people about our show. Subscribe if you're not already a subscriber. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you next week. Bye, guys. Bye.